Listen, I, I want to say this, and I, I know that you know this. Never take for granted the family of God has put together here, okay? The body of Christ. You belong to a family that um, is, is very much of a blessing that he's put together. Um, we never want to... I think when we went through um, COVID and we shut down, that was a time I hated that. I think uh, the rest of you did too. And, and uh, I remember just a few weeks, a short time after... Um, we were told to shut down and everything. People were showing up. It's like, what do we do? Let, just let them in. So, um, but we really saw how important it was for us to be in fellowship. And, and I know that some that you're watching online, that you're not able to be here physically. And, and uh, you're a part of our church family, and uh, whatever the reason might be. But um, especially in the days in which we're in. And that's why the scripture says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, especially as you see the day approaching. You know, the thing to remember, this isn't heaven, okay? We're not a perfect church. You've heard me say, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, because then you'll ruin it. It will no longer be perfect. <laughs> but, um, but seriously, um, this is a place for us to grow together in the love of Christ, to learn the word of God, to use our gifts to edify the body of Christ. And he gave some to be pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, for, you know, for raising up people for us to minister together into a dying world. So please don't ever lose perspective of that. It's like, well, I'll just go to church, you know. I, no, this is, this is very precious to Jesus. I've heard people say, I don't need to go to church. I'm still saved. Well, you are saved, but you are missing out. You are missing out so much on what God wants to do. And uh, as we grow together, as we mature together, as we're seeing these things that are before us in the days that are dark, and they are dark days, um, we really do need each other to encourage each other to be here to pray for one another. So don't, don't miss out on that. And Travis and Heather have had the opportunity for the last 11 years to be here and be blessed. And so many of you have been here for so many years. And it really is precious to me. I, I really see it as an honor and a privilege to pastor this church and, and to be the shepherd here. And it humbles me because I'm surprised the Lord would allow me to last this long. Um, but as we just look to him, it's, it's his work. Amen. It's his church, so we'll keep moving forward. And I can't wait to the time when we're all together. When we're all together and no more separations or moving around and things like that. But in the meantime, he's got things for us to do, all right? And we can be here to love on each other and to encourage each other and be salt and light to a dying world. So... Father, I do pray that once again, as we study your word, as we open up Daniel chapter 8, that there's something here for us and the body of Christ. Um, the church is important to Jesus. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He stands in the midst of the church, as we see in Revelation chapter 1. And Lord, he's going to come for his church. We look forward to that day. It's not about hype and entertainment and trying to build a name for ourselves 
but to simply come and say, as Paul said, I come preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. The world desperately needs to see that. And Lord, that we have truth and light and love. Our, our weapons aren't carnal, but they are spiritual. We see a nation that is decaying spiritually, morally before us. We, we applaud the decision of the Supreme Court this week, but that doesn't end what we see, death of unborn children in wounds. We know that the answer is a heart's being changed. So, Lord, we do pray. We thank you for this overturning of constitutional right to have abortions, but they're still taking place, and in our state, probably even more. Lord, you said in Jeremiah 21, you set before us, the way of life and the way of death. And Lord, we want to, to stand for life, for the sanctity of life. So we just commit that all to you and to our community and our nation, that there would be revival. We know that before revival, there needs to be repentance. So I pray that you would just do that work even as Daniel prayed for his nation, as we're going to see in the next chapter. And Lord, I, I just pray for our own lives, that revival would come into our families, to this church. We are closer to the return of the Lord than any other generation of Christians. So that means something to us. Lord, touch our hearts right now with your word. We just give it to you for you to just speak to us. And so we not only look at the implication here, but the application for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I believe I said Daniel chapter 8, if you'll turn there. And we're going to start at the top of the chapter. But Daniel, as you know, is very straightforward in how you divide up the book of Daniel. The first six chapters are narrative that speak of the person of Daniel, the, the captive of Judah at a young age, only probably 13, 14 years of age, taken away to Babylon to serve in the affairs of the Babylonian government. And it was Daniel that stood fast and firm for the Lord, and because of that, he found favor with the Lord. We know that Daniel would continue to serve there through the whole 70 years of captivity into the reign of Darius of the Medes and the Persians. So we see the integrity of Daniel, the, the godliness of Daniel, the, the uprightness of Daniel in the pages of the first six chapters that we learn so much about. The next seven, six chapters, or chapter 7 through 12, we look at the prophecies of Daniel. And that's what we began to look at in chapter 7. We took our time going through the chapter. And Daniel having that vision concerning four great beasts that arise out of the sea. And the fourth beast that was dreadful and terrible that he tells us about had those ten horns. And in the midst of the ten horns was this little horn. And this little horn is, we identified the little horn as being a future leader that's going to come on the scene called the Antichrist. He's going to be a world leader. And he is going to be the leader of this new Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire. It correlates with the interpretation that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar of his dream in chapter 2. The feet of clay mingled with iron and the ten toes. And we are told in this chapter that 
those ten horns are ten kings, and we know from chapter 2 the ten toes are kings that are going to exist at the time that the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom. So there's a future empire that's going to be led by this, this antichrist, this little horn that's going to be a world leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be an economic leader. He's going to be a religious leader because he's going to command the world to worship him. And we will be looking at that even in more detail as we continue through the book of Daniel. So here is this vision. And also the focus of chapter 7 was the Ancient of Days on his throne. And the Son of Man coming with clouds and to establish his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. And we need to keep that in mind as we travel through the book of Daniel, as we talk about this period of time that is before us, and, and this period of time is called the Day of the Lord. Uh, we know that as we continue to move through Daniel, uh, chapter 2, <laughs> verse 4, through chapter 7, was written in Aramaic, now switches back to Hebrew. And the reason that it switches back to Hebrews is because in chapter 8, Daniel's second vision concerns the empires of Persia and Greece. Matter of fact, amazing prophecy that is given to us that is near fulfillment that was fulfilled but it was given a couple hundred years before these prophecies were fulfilled and it concerns Israel and um, Israel uh, how they directly are impacted by uh, Persia by the Medo-Persian Empire and by the Grecian Empire now I want you to keep this in mind that Daniel is going to show us that Israel is the epicenter of end time prophecy we see that not only in the book of Daniel, but in the Old Testament particularly. There's many, many verses. There's whole chapters that speak of, of and center on Israel in the tribulation period, in the millennium reign of Christ. It's the most documented period of time in the Bible, referred to as, as I've already mentioned, the day of the Lord. And there are many of the prophecies that are given to us that are yet to be fulfilled that center around the return of the Lord, the, the reign of the Lord, they could not come to pass unless Israel is back in their original homeland. And this is what's so amazing about this book. It speaks of not only them coming back from the first captivity, that is the 70 years of captivity of Babylon, but it speaks of them coming back into the land after the second captivity that lasted for 2,000 years. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks about how they're going to build an embankment around you. They're going to dash your children. There's going to be death and devastation. And, and you're going to go into captivity to all the nations. But you're going to return, is what Jesus would say. That happened in 1948. In 1948, an absolute miracle happened as they were established as a nation once again in their original homeland. Unheard of in human history. That, that a group of people that have left their, their homeland for 2,000 years to come back into the original homeland. It's a fulfillment of what we see in Ezekiel 36 and 37. The dry bones there in the valley that come together, and Ezekiel was asked, can these bones be made to live? And they come together to a skeleton, and Ezekiel says, you know, Lord, and then the skin and the muscles and the tissues and then their corpse, and the Lord breathed life into those, those corpse, and it is a prophecy of a nation that was dead, that has come alive. And now they're in the ancient cities and rebuilding those cities and the hills of, of Israel. And the reason I'm mentioning these things, because as we look at these near prophecies, 
that are fulfilled of them coming back from the first captivity. What happens here to the Medo-Persian Empire? And that's what this chapter is going to begin to talk about. Uh, the empires of Persia and Greece as they relate, as I said, to Israel. And we know that, that as they have been fulfilled, that the future prophecies that concern the coming of the Lord, we know that they will be fulfilled as well. So here is Israel. They, they become a nation once again that was called in 1948 the super sign of end time prophecy. That is the end time clock begin to tick. And as we see them back into the land, here's the thing to keep in mind that the prophecies concerning the return of the Lord, many of them cannot be fulfilled unless Israel is a nation once again back in the land. That is the covenant that we will discuss that the Antichrist makes with Israel for a week, the final seven-year period called the Tribulation Period. The building of the temple, the abomination of desolation that Jesus would speak of, and other things. And I want to just say this, and then we're going to go into chapter 8. But there is what is called replacement theology. Unfortunately, it has been a doctrine that has grown even among evangelical churches. And what that doctrine says is that God is through with Israel and that God does not have a future plan for them and the promises that God gave to them um, is, is not going to be fulfilled. And the church not only replaces Israel, but the church is Israel. Well, there's some real major problems with that view. One of them is you read over and over again in the the Old Testament, and there's many verses concerning Israel, the promise that God made to her, whole chapters on it, that God said, I will fulfill it. I will bring it to pass. So he will be faithful to bring in these things to pass, but also as they're back in the land, as they're rebuilding the ancient cities, as we see these things that are being fulfilled, uh, I believe that as we go through the New Testament, there is a clear distinction between the church and Israel. And the church in Israel is not used interchangeably to where Israel means the church. I don't see it. When Paul was writing about his countrymen, the Jews, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 11, Paul writes, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. He has not done that. And then Paul writes about the future of Israel and says that blindness has come in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And at that time, all of Israel will be saved. So God has a plan for the church. When it comes to the return of the Lord, there's two different aspects that many of you know. There's the rapture of the church where he's going to come for the church. And there are those also that are saying, I talk to them just about every week, well, I'm told that there is no rapture of the church, that the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, you know, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Do you know that? And we believe the word of God. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but really, if you look at the Latin Bible, the word rapture is there. That those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up, First Thessalonians chapter 4, harpazo in the Greek, is the Latin word rapturus, where we get our English word rapture. It means a sudden taken. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church about the resurrection, he said that we shall not all sleep. In other words, not all of us are going to die. But we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to be resurrected. And so we know the Bible clearly talks about a generation of Christians that are going to be taken to meet the Lord in the air. And as we meet the Lord in the air, as he comes for his church, then we're going to be tucked away. 
for seven years while the tribulation period is taking place. And then we know that the emphasis is going to be back on Israel in what is called Daniel's 70th week. And we'll talk more about that specifically when we get to chapter 9. But to say that the prerequisite of, of Jesus coming back in the second coming of Jesus Christ, we know when that's going to take place. We know that that will take place at the end of the tribulation period. Chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation is speaking of the, the seven-year tribulation period. At the end, Jesus Christ comes back and restores the nation of Israel. He judges the nations, and we know that he establishes his kingdom. When it comes to the rapture of the church, there's the doctrine of imminent return that is given to us. And Jesus very specifically said that I come in an hour that you do not know, that you least expect. That warning is given to us. Uh, the commandment is given to us to be watching, be sober, be vigilant. Don't be weighed down with the cares of the world, that that day should overtake you unexpectedly. I come as a thief in the night. So we see that doctrine of imminent return very clearly. And so I believe with all of my heart that the Lord is going to come for his church when we are least expected. He meant what he said, and he said what he meant. And the next thing on the prophetic calendar, I believe, is going to be the rapture of the church, where he's going to come for us, and we're going to meet him in the air, and then we are going to be tucked away for that time that tribulation comes upon a Christ-rejected world. So here, Israel, once again, will go through the trials of the tribulation period as well as the tribulation saints that come to believe. I want to read to you from Zechariah chapter 12 concerning the God delivering his people, the restoration of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah is an amazing book. And it shall be in that day in chapter 12 that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. We know that at the end of the tribulation period that there's going to be the nations of the world that will meet in the valley of Megiddo in northern Israel, and they will come against Jerusalem. It seems like Israel's about ready to fall. Jerusalem's about ready to fall. And then it goes on to say, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Remen in the plain of Megiddo. So we know that they are going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah as they're going to cry out to him. Joel speaks of that in chapter 2. And their eyes are going to be open. And even Jesus spoke about the national restoration of Israel. As he wept over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I say you will see me no longer until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's after the triumphal entry of Jesus. He's speaking of the time. You're not going to see me anymore until you receive me and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they will be restored. It's a national restoration. So the Bible speaks of that. Many verses of the Old Testament, the New Testament speaks of it. The other side of the spectrum is this, and then we're going to get into chapter 8. I don't believe in the double covenant that some people say that, well, because they are God's chosen people, um, that they are automatically saved. Jesus said this, and always remember this. 
that I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus would say to the religious leaders of the nation that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And in Paul, in that section of Romans in chapter 10, we, he was writing about his countrymen, would write, Brethren, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So I want us to have a good understanding of what I see very clearly throughout the scriptures, and that is God has not forgotten Israel and will one day restore his intended role um, for her as the nation that he has chosen. But we also know that it will come at a time when their eyes are open and they come to receive Jesus. Keep that all in mind as we go through these chapters of Daniel. So let's begin in chapter 8 in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So Daniel has this vision two years after the vision he had in chapter 7, which would put it about 551 B.C., Keep in mind that Daniel's having this vision while Babylon is still in power. And the vision is going to deal with the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire and the rise of the Grecian Empire. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar dies and there is a succession of kings that would lead to Belshazzar ruling with his father, a co-ruler. We, we talked about that in detail in chapter 5 of Daniel. But as Belshazzar's ruling, the, the last 17 years before it fell, the empire is decreasing in power. There's turmoil that's going on. And the Medo-Persian Empire comes together in this alliance and, of course, eventually takes over Babylon. And here Daniel is speaking about when having this vision, and, and we know that the Medo-Persian Empire at this time is not the primary power, world power, the Grecian Empire uh, really wasn't much of anything when Daniel receives his vision. He says, I was in Shushan, the citadel, the province of Elam, which is in western Iran today, you know, what we would know today if we looked at a map, bordering the Persian Gulf. It's about 200 miles east of Babylon. And we know that Shushan would become the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. You read the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, Nehemiah the cupbearer, right? He's in Shushan of the citadel. He's the cupbearer to the king, and he comes to Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. That's after this time. And he asks permission to go back to rebuild the wall and the streets around Jerusalem. Now keep that in mind when we go over the 70 weeks of Daniel in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. 536 B.C., 70 years of captivity are over, they could go back and rebuild the temple as the decree was given by Cyrus. The book of Esther takes place in Shushan here of the citadel. So there's historical significance as we read the scriptures of this place that Daniel is taken in the spirit. And at the time of this vision, Shushan wasn't anything of significance, but would end up being the capital of, of Persia. And when you read the word Persia in the Old Testament, it is the modern-day country of Iran. Matter of fact, Iran was called Persia till 1935. 
So here he is at the river. Let's continue to read. And then I lift up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. So Daniel sees this ram. And on the ram was two horns. One was higher than the other, uh, and the higher one came up last. So the question becomes, who is this ram, and what are the two horns all about? Well, we can be certain that the ram is speaking of the Medo-Persian Empire. They're the chest and arms of the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And the Medes and the Persians, as I've already said, would come together. They would form this alliance, and they would conquer Babylon. The Medes would come to power first, and then the Persians would rise to power and become stronger and overshadow the Medes. And here is this ram that represents that empire. They would come to power just about 13, 14 years after Daniel has this vision, when in chapter 5 again, Cyrus comes into the city of Babylon, and he takes it. And of course, uh, Daniel chapter 5 speaks of that, as well as Isaiah 200 years before that event happened. And the end of chapter 44 of Isaiah, the first two verses of chapter 45, that Isaiah very specifically names Cyrus, God names him by name, says that Cyrus is my servant, and that Cyrus would make this decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and that he would come into the gate of the city, even that he would divert the flow of the, of the river. So very specific prophecies that are given 200 years before it even happened. When Cyrus made the decree in 536 B.C. for the Jews to be able to go back to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel, the civil leader, Joshua the high priest, would all go back and they would have just under 50,000 people and they would rebuild the temple. That's all according to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not telling you all of this just to bore you with a lot of biblical history, but it helps us, it's information to help us understand what's going on here. The things that took place, the timeline of this prophetic vision that was a near fulfillment, and knowing this, that as the Lord declares in the book of Isaiah, that he knows the end from the beginning. That's what makes this book so unique, that we know that these near fulfillments that came to pass, that the future fulfillments, which chapter 8 is going to speak about, that we can be certain that those prophecies will come to pass as well. So God's word is very, very certain about um, the things that the prophecies given that came to pass will come to pass, not that they might come to pass. They will come to pass, folks. Even as Daniel said in chapter 2, the vision, listen, the dream that you had, Nebuchadnezzar, concerning those empires that leads to the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is certain and it is sure. So the ram here seen by Daniel. Now, we have read that Babylon had the wise men, right? They had the soothsayers. They had the, the astrologers. They, they had the wise men of Babylon. That was not uncommon in ancient cultures. We see that with Egypt, right? They had the astrologers. They had the magicians that served Pharaoh. Well, Persia, they would divide their regions by the zodiac. And the province of Elam would be under the sign of Aries, which is symbolized by the ram. 
Now, you might be thinking, I didn't know that. Well, that's probably a good thing, okay? Because we don't give ourselves to the zodiac, do we? Astrology, to horoscopes. Unfortunately, that there are too many Christians that I've talked to that like to dabble in those things. They like to dabble in horoscopes, in the zodiac, tarot cards even, occultic kinds of things. And we are told very clearly in the scriptures that we're to stay away from those things. And we are to look to the creator, not to create it. We're not to look to occultic practices. We are to look to the Lord and trust him. So we know that the, 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 it's speaking this ram of Persia. The king of Persia would stand before his army, not with a crown, but with a ram's head. The ram was the national emblem of Persia. They would have a ram on their minted coins. And just in case anyone doubts that this is speaking of the Medo-Persian Empire, just read verse 20, and it tells us very clearly. So that settles it. So you have the one horn that is higher than the other. It's pushing westward, this ram. Uh, towards Babylon, northward the Scythians, southward the Egyptians. Uh, they really did not make a major conquest towards the east. And the Medo-Persian Empire would be the world empire for about 200 years. But the vision continues, verse 5. And I was considering, and suddenly a male goat came up from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. In verse 7, and I saw him uh, confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And therefore the male goat grew very great, verse 8 tells us. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of his four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. So the Medo-Persian Empire had this massive army. History tells us they had an army of about two and a half million soldiers. I mean, that's incredible. It's incredible in ancient times. Can you imagine the logistics, the water they would have to bring, and the cooking, and the supplies, and all of that? So here was this massive army, and they conquered anyone who got in their way. But in this vision, this male goat came from the west. We were told across the surface of the whole earth, it came against the ram. The male goat, we were told, came at the ram with furious power, verse 6, moved with rage against the ram, verse 7, attacked it and broke its two horns, and the ram was cast to the ground and was trampled. And the goat, of course, would correlate with the belly of brass in Daniel chapter 2, the Grecian Empire. The goat was a common representation of the Greek Empire. Sometimes they would even be referred to as the goat's people. The Grecian Empire would be led by, as many of you know, Alexander the Great. And the vision is so telling, it's so exact. The goat came across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, had a notable horn speaking of how Alexander the Great would move at incredible speed. He would, Alexander, become the king at the age of 20. He begins to move militarily. His first major victory against the Persians, he defeated them with only 35,000 men against an overwhelming, massive Persian army. He defeated the Medo-Persian army in May of 334 B.C. 
And then Alexander defeated them again in November 333 B.C. And then in October 331 B.C. And then Alexander would defeat Darius III. And at that time, that would be the end of the Persian Empire. Alexander the Great, in his 15 years of military conquest, which began when he was only 18 years of age, he never lost a battle. He also would not only be a great military leader, but he was tutored by Aristotle, who was able to, to you know, conquer not only by, by brute strength and military conquest, but through political strategy, the philosophy that he learned, be able to persuade people and leaders. We know historically Alexander had red hair. I just thought you'd be interested in that. And he would suffer from allurophobia. You might be thinking, what's allurophobia? That's a fear of cats. So he was afraid of cats. Kind of, when you think about it, you can put, you know, horses and chariots and fighting men in front of him. He would give you a whipping. He wasn't afraid of you. They should have just put a whole bunch of cats in front of him, and he probably would have ran off. Verse 8 tells us that he became very great, and he became strong. The large horn was broken, and in its place, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. He conquered the known world by the time he was 33 years of age. He dies, interesting enough, in the southern palace of Babylon. He became an alcoholic, history tells us. And there's different accounts of concerning his death. Some say that he died after he drank a large amount of wine in honor of Hercules. And as he was drunk, he would walk back to his tent in the soaking rain as it rained on him, he fell asleep in his clothes, he got pneumonia and died. There's other accounts that suggest that he was poisoned, uh, the wine was poisoned as he drank it, and it was poisoned by his son. And there's even a suggestion that Aristotle may have been involved in that conspiracy. After Alexander conquered the world, he had no one else to fight. And so he began to weep. The great cry of Alexander the Great was, Are there no more worlds for me to conquer? He conquered the known world at the age of 33, and he cried like a baby. Became an alcoholic. He had no nations to fight, so he began fighting with his generals. He gets drunk. He dies. And that's the end of Alexander the Great. Jesus said, What good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Dying at a young age, at the age of 33. Jesus dying on the cross when he was 33 years of age. Alexander, who conquered the known world through bloodshed. And Jesus dies for the sins of the world, shedding his own blood on a cross. Alexander, who rode on a magnificent black stallion. Jesus rode on a lowly donkey. Alexander buried in a golden casket and buried in Egypt, Alexandria, and a great monument was built to his memory. Jesus was put into a tomb that was borrowed, and he rose again after three days. And it will be Jesus that will come again in great power and glory, while he will rule and reign all over all of the world. Another interesting note about Alexander, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that Alexander the Great had a dream concerning the high priest in Jerusalem. Alexander was moving towards Jerusalem and Egypt, and the high priest, he has a dream concerning Alexander coming to Jerusalem. 
When Alexander gets to Jerusalem, he is met by the high priest. The high priest shows him Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 8 and showed him that God said 200 years previous to the, that, that time that, that you would defeat Persia, Alexander, and these victories would come and how, and you're going to do it with great speed and power. And Alexander was so amazed by that, he spared Jerusalem. Now, after the death of Alexander, his empire is divided up among his four generals. It took longer to do that than him conquering the world militarily. So it took many years for it to finally be divided up, but it would be divided up by his four generals, those families. Ptolemy would rule over Egypt and Asia Minor. Seleucus would rule over North Syria and Mesopotamia. Cassander would rule over Greece, and Lysinicus would rule in the east. Now, when we get into chapter 11, it's going to give us some detailed prophecy concerning two of these families that would rule, Ptolemy in Egypt and the Seleucus family in Syria. And guess, as you have Egypt, you have Syria to the north, guess who's stuck in between them? It's Israel. And they go back and forth, and they're fighting one another. And when we pick up in verse 9 next week, we're going to learn of another little horn that is told to us, not of chapter 7, but of chapter 8. And what this Syrian king did 175 years before the birth of Jesus and how he's going to give us a picture of the future little horn that's going to come on the scene that is the little horn of chapter 7. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be quite incredible as we see Daniel give detail to that. But Father, we just thank you for these few verses that we looked at, knowing that you know the end from the beginning, recorded in your word for us, and that it is certain and sure. And Lord, that as the near fulfillments came to pass, we know the future fulfillments will come to pass as well. So Lord, I just, I thank you that we have the privilege to read this incredible account written in the 6th century B.C. That Lord, that... As we read your word, all of it, it is truth. And we can stand on your word. Lord, I pray for anyone who may be here that you've never committed yourself to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that if you've done that, come in faith and call out on the name of Jesus to repent. Confess that you're a sinner. That you would do that right now. Don't leave this place if you're not right with God. Because his invitation is for you to come. And he died for you because of his love for you. And from that cross, he cried out, it is finished. It is Christ alone. It is faith alone. So come to him and surrender your life and heart to him. You can pray right where you are that Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me and it is finished. Forgive me. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. Sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior because you are Lord of all, you're King of kings. I'm going to come back, I believe, to rule and reign. And I thank you that I belong to this kingdom now that lasts forever. 
And I want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for all of us as we leave this place. We do. We, we pray for our nation. We pray for our community, our families. We don't want to give up because it's a battle out there that's heating up. We thank you for your forgiveness and love. And Lord, we just pray that in our own lives that there needs to be repentance, that that will take place before there is true revival. With us, our families, our community, this nation. So Lord, we pray for your spirit to be poured out on us. There be a humbling and looking to you. So Lord, we thank you for today. Commit everything to you, every day, every hour. We need thee. So Lord, just bless everyone here as, as we head into a holiday weekend next weekend. Again, praying for our nation. Praying that there be a turning to you. We need you. We need your help. We need your deliverance and your mercy. Lord, bless everyone here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.